Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, let me invite you then to turn to 2 Samuel, please, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, and you'll find that on page 259 in your church Bibles, 259 in the black Bibles around you, or 306 if you're using a large print version. We've been spending three Sunday mornings in this chapter, and we come for the first time this morning to the second half of these wonderful words. I'm going to read from verse 17, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are good and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is amazing to us that we are here this morning because of these words spoken to David and spoken by David. 
your promise has reached the very ends of the earth. And so we pray that you would simply this morning help us to sit before you. And as you speak, to sit and adore. For we ask it in your precious name. Amen. I want you to imagine the incredible with me. I want to imagine that today somebody gives you a million pounds. What would you do? Okay, now it's a wonderful time of year, isn't it, to be offered a million pounds at Christmas time. But you cannot believe it, but there it is. It's in your bank account. You check it online and every single penny of a million pounds is yours and given to you. What would you do? Now, of course, you'd want to give most of it to the building project, I know. Once you've done that and you look at what is left, you look at what is left, what would you do? Now, here's the real question. What would you say to the person who gave it to you? It's It's not payment. It's not for something you've done. It's got nothing to do with who you are. A friend says to you, I just want you to have this. I'm going to give it to you. What I'm trying to get you to imagine, friends, if you can imagine the way that your finances would be transformed in a moment, I'm trying to get us to imagine how we would respond to sheer, unmerited, lavish grace. What should we do to it? 2 Samuel chapter 7 has two parts. Verses 1 to 17, God's words to David. And now this morning, verses 18 to 29, David's words back to God. The, the, the pattern is everywhere in the Bible, isn't it? It's, it's how our worship began this morning. God speaks first and then we respond, we answer. And what I want to show us this morning is that the right response, the humble response, the response that shows that we understand who God is and what God has done for us, the right response is to ask questions to ask questions. I want to show us the questions we really need to ask at Christmas. So this morning, if you can believe it or not, I do not have any points for us as we work our way through this passage. I just have questions for us. Just look how our passage begins, verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. I love this. King David went in and sat before the Lord. Here's what we need to know. That word sat in verse 18, it's exactly the same word that you get in verse 1 of the chapter. But there it's translated as lived. So look at verse 1. Now when the king sat or lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, then look at verse 2, remember, The house that David sat in was a nice house, a house of cedar. It was in the West End. It was a very fine place indeed. And David, sitting in that house, thinks to himself, God needs to sit in a very fine place, like I do. But now in verse 18, after God has spoken to David to say, no, 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 David, you you don't understand. I don't need A place like that. After God has spoken. Do you see the effect of the word. 
to David, it makes David go in and sit before the Lord. You see it? God's gracious word moves David from his grand house, out of his grand house, into God's humble house. God speaking moves David, doesn't it, from the caviar world to the canvas world. Wonder of wonders that the high up God is to be found in the low down place. And David leaves the palace or the temple or the the cedar-like, palace-like building and sits in a tent. He's humbled. Do you know what else he is? Isn't it true? Verse 18, he is stopped, isn't he? He stopped, he he sits, he stops. 17 verses we've just had of God saying again and again to David, I will do this, I will do this, I will make, remember all the verbs, I will appoint, I will plant, I will give, I will raise up. I'm promising you a dynasty, David, that will never end. It is all God and it is all lavish grace and it is all undeserved and it is all amazing. So friends, look what David does not do. He does not start running around asking God for the plan so that he can get cracking. No, he he sits. He stops. King David went in and sat before the Lord. Isn't it true? It it is slowly dawning on David. Ha! God is the one who does the running around here. The, The acting, the working, the providing, the giving. And David's job is to receive, to take, to hold, to have. I want to ask you again, friends, how would you respond to lavish, undeserved, magnificent grace? One million pounds, what would you do? Just, just, just think about that. I mean, listen, I, I know what I'm like. I know what many of you are like. Some of us cannot even let someone buy us a coffee without feeling bad about it. No, 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 no. We say, I'll, I'll get this. I'll, I'll pay my way. A gift? free to me? No, no, there must be some mistake. We do not know how to be in the presence of undeserved favor and just receive it. Isn't it such a shame that Christmas is the busiest season of the year? Such a shame. I, I don't know how you avoid it really. There seems to be no escape from it. There is so much running around, and so little sitting around. So little sitting before the Lord in the presence of sheer wonder. Brothers and sisters, here's what we need to know at Christmas time. The incarnation, the Lord Jesus coming into the world, is not an imperative. It's not a command for us. Okay, the, the linguists talk about indicatives and imperatives. Imperatives, imperatives are commands. They, they tell you to do something. Indicatives are statements of fact. They're just the way it is. 
God sending his son into the world as a baby is an indicative. It's a fact. It happened. The eternal son enfleshed, adding to himself a human nature. And that son is given David's throne from which he will rule the world forever. Friends, Christmas rolls around every year and Christmas says to us every single year, this world has a story, a single story, a unified story. And at the heart of the story is grace. The grace of a promise made and a promise kept here in Second Samuel. And our job is to do what with that story? To wonder. To, to be amazed. To, to marvel. Our, our job is to do what Mary does to the angel when the angel speaks to Mary and tells her what will happen. What does Mary do? She asks a question. First words out of her mouth, a question. How? How can this possibly happen? I heard the words of a beautiful Christmas song this week. A birth that brought the morning. A cry that meant the night would have to end. Angels' song announcing, Blessed Son, come down to all mankind. What was prophesied has come to pass. Hope arising means that I am free at last. Really, Lord? Really, you would do all of that for me? Oh, friends, astonished questions are the very essence of the right response to the gospel, to grace, to undeserved, lavish love. Really? Really? To me? To me, Lord? Do you see it in verse 18? King David went in and sat before the Lord and said and asked, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Did you see one of the questions that David asks? Who am I, Lord, that you would do this for me? That, that's what's happening here all the way through to verse 22. If you run your eyes through the verses, you don't really need me to show it to you, do you? David has seen something of the greatness of who God is. And when he sees how great God is, he asks who he is. Me, Lord, my house? Who am I? And what are we that you would do all of this for me and for us? I've watched this past week uh, on, on, on TV the story of David Beckham, uh, the, I guess one of the most famous footballers, certainly one of the most famous celebrities in the world, going back to East London where he was from and coaching a struggling boys team in the league that he used to play for. It's the kind of thing that makes amazing TV. This team is bottom of the league. They've lost all their games. The coaches are tearing their hair out. The boys have lost confidence. And David Beckham arrives to coach them for a season. And there's, there's the most beautiful moment where the coaches are in the changing rooms. They've lost another match. And the coaches are speaking to the boys saying, Now, we're going to get you some help this season. We've got somebody coming to help. And David Beckham is standing outside the door in the corridor. And the coach says to the boys, we've got someone to help. 
And there is this most beautiful moment when David Beckham just walks into the boys' changing room. And after their jaws drop, and after the sheer amazement and the sheer wonder and the sheer incredulity of what has just happened to them, what do they do? They start asking questions. Is this for real, they say? It cannot be, it cannot be true. You're going to be our coach? And then, of course, they start asking, can we touch you? They start asking, will you follow us on Instagram? And it is true. There he is. He enters their world for a season. He's right there on the training pitch. He's at the matches. He's in their homes. He even plays in a parents versus boys match, scores the winning goal, of course. And you see the wonder in the boy's eyes all the way through the program. Who are we that you would do this? for? Look at us. We're bottom of the league. We're a bottom of the league kind of team. And you, you of all people would come to us. Brothers and sisters, maybe more than anything else in all the world, The questions that we ask of God show how much we've understood his undeserved grace. See, David's question here in verse 18, it praises God for his past grace, doesn't it? Who am I and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? It's like John Newton's great hymn, Amazing Grace. It's like that hymn being prayed in advance, isn't it? "'Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." David praises God for past experienced grace, verse 18, and he praises him for promised future grace, verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. This is instruction for mankind. Look, look, David's saying to God, I I know that getting me from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, from being shepherd boy to king, I I know now that that was just small fry. That was a small thing to go from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. There was only six miles between them. But now what you're going to do is going to go 6,000 years into the future. You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. That's why you're so great, Lord. I will soon lie down in the dust, and when I lie down, you will raise up through me a dynasty that will never end. Do you know that seven times in this prayer, maybe you you caught it as we were reading it, seven times in this prayer, David addresses God, O Lord God. You see that? But that title for God appears nowhere else in the book of Samuel. It only comes here. But do you know where else you get it in the Bible? It's the title that Abraham uses when he responds to God's promise. When Abraham speaks back to God, he calls him, O Lord God. And then that title appears nowhere else in the book of Genesis. This is David's way of saying to God, I know that God's promise to Abraham to bless the whole world is being fulfilled through me. Friends, here is why God is great. 
Here's why God is great. Because centuries before anybody even knew that Scotland existed, God told Abraham that through him he would bless the people of Scotland. Through you, even though no one has yet heard of the United States of America, through you, Abraham, through you, David, America will be blessed and Ghana will be blessed and Nigeria and Kenya and Romania and Poland and Australia and Greece and England. And then centuries later, David came along and God said to David, here's how I'm going to keep that promise to Abraham. Through you, David, I'm going to give a king. Through your family, this king will have an eternal rule and all nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Do you see it in verse 19? This is instruction for mankind. This is instruction for everyone. Oh, God is so great. He's not a provincial deity. He's not a national deity. What God is doing for David's house by providing a throne and a king who will last forever, he is instructing everybody, all of mankind. That word for instruction there in in verse 19, it is literally Torah, law. This is God's law for everyone, for everyone, for the whole world. Brothers and sisters, we live in a ruled world. And we live in a storied world, a world that has a story. Do you know that at Christmas? We do not live in an anarchy world, in a pointless, plotless world. No, we live in a world where there is one throne above all other thrones. We live in a world where Jesus is king. And everybody else below him is just borrowing a bit of power for a time. For a short season. And then they're gone. But Jesus will never be gone. We live in a world that has a story, that has a beginning and a middle and an end. And there is one story that makes sense of all other stories. This is instruction for all mankind. Oh, it does not matter who you are. Western, Eastern, male, female, gay, straight, trans, young, old, rich, poor. There is... Jesus' throne to rule us all. One throne. The story of what God is doing in the world through Jesus is the story in which all other stories need to be located and find themselves. Friend, today there is not your truth and my truth and everybody else's truth. It's a really sad thing, isn't it, about the Harry and Meghan story on Netflix, if you've been watching it. I've I've watched it this week. I do do other things apart from watching TV all the time, Um, if you you can believe it. But it's it's the thing that struck me about it, how sad it is. This is our truth. This is our truth. And, and you know what they mean, of course, don't, don't, don't you? But, but they're having to put out there their truth because their relationship with their families is so broken and we have fracture and heartache and it all looks like a mess. There's no coherence to what used to be united and used to be one and used to be together. The world seems full of a million splintered stories until you read 2 Samuel 7, David saying, this is instruction for everyone. 
One day all stories will be seen to fit into Jesus' story. One day all of world history will be seen to be church history. There is not my truth, your truth, their truth. No, we are actors on the stage. We're, we're not the director of the play. God is writing the story and King Jesus is the fulfillment to all of God's promises. It's why David asks the next question, verse 20. And what more can David say to you? He, he sounds like a preacher, doesn't he? What more can I say? And then actually he goes on and keeps speaking all the way through to verse 29. It's not, it's not literally what more can I say. He means my words are so inadequate compared to your words. He's thinking to himself, isn't he? I, I wanted to build you a bricks and mortar kind of place. And I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed now. I wanted to build bricks and mortar palace. You want to build a forever people. I'm speechless at who you are and what you do and how you work. I wonder, wonder if you remember, friends, Job. Do you remember Job at the end of that astonishing book? Where in spite of all his suffering and all his heartache, when Job gets his moment in God's courtroom, when Job finally gets into God and speaks to him, what, what does he say all the way through? He's saying, I'm going to give you both barrels, God. When I get in your presence, I'm going to give you what for? And God speaks to him out of the whirlwind. And what does Job say to God, do you remember? Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. He lays his hand over his mouth. Brothers and sisters, God's promises here, that they do not always lessen our pain, do they? I'm going to come to that in just a moment. I want to give us a bit of help with that as we finish. But when we see what David could see, when we see what he could see, and I, I use that word see deliberately, when we see what David could see because of what he heard, look, look back at verse 17, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. It's amazing, isn't it? There was no vision given to, to Nathan, to David. There was just words. But God's words create a picture of the future. God's promise creates a vision of a king and a throne and a kingdom. And it creates a picture of Jesus on that throne. When you see that, we recognize that God's words to us matter more than our words to God. And the scale of what God has promised to do in the world means that we should cover our mouths so often. Wonder if, I wonder if you know what mute awe feels like. Have you ever heard that phrase, mute awe? Oh, we should know what mute awe feels like at Christmas time, shouldn't we? See within a manger lies. He who built the starry skies. Can you, can you sing that, friends, every year without sheer astonishment? See within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Can you take it in? I mean, what can we say in response? 
Do you know why we have it? Do you know why we have Christmas? Verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. I told us last week that in the Hebrew language, there is no actual word for promise. It's just word. It's just word. Promise is the word for word. So verse 21, because of your word and according to your own heart. It's the same in verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised. It's just literally you have said this good thing. It's there in verse 25. Now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken. That's the meaning here in verse 19. The reason, in verse 21, the reason for everything, for all this grace, is because of your word. And look how beautiful it is. According to your own heart. According to your own heart. I wonder if we can take this in. That the Lord's great purpose in His promise to Abraham, to David, to Israel, to the whole world, His great purpose arose from within His heart, not your heart or my heart. His heart. It's like it's just slowly dawning on David, isn't it? I didn't do anything to make you love me. I didn't do anything to become king, to become ruler of your people. No, you set your love on me. It was you that did it. I was a nobody, a shepherd boy. There was, there was nothing about Abraham that caught God's eye and said, oh, he's special. There's nothing about Israel, nothing about the church that deserves any awards. It was just because of your heart, oh God. Your heart. Oh, the grace. Oh, the favor. Oh, the love. It should come as a source of profound, amazing comfort to you this morning, friend, that unlike the way that we love, where we set our love on lovely people and lovely things, it's how we love, isn't it? Our love is pulled out of us because of something lovable and lovely in the object of our love. Oh, it should be a profound comfort that God loves the exact opposite way. He doesn't move towards people he finds lovely. He he moves towards us because of his own heart and then he makes us lovely. It is the very essence of God's heart to love the unlovable. To pick the son at the end of the line and to make him king. Therefore you are great, verse 22, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so another question arises, doesn't it? Verse 23, not just who am I, not just who is my house, and who is like your people, Israel? Oh, I hope by now you're asking these questions with David in your heart. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a a nation and its gods. What is it that makes Trinity Church special? 
What is it that makes any body of believers special, any church special? Nothing. Nothing about us that makes us unique. Nothing about us that makes us head and shoulders above anybody else in our city or anybody else in our workplace. There is nothing natural to us to make us special. We're not unique because we're kind or pleasant or because we do social action or because we have a different sexual ethic from the people around us. No, no the, the reason David, asking, David is asking this question, the reason the answer to the question in verse 23, the reason the answer is no one, no one is like us, is because of what God has done for us, not because of what we do for God. Just look at the terms of it again in verse 23. Who did all the running? Oh, there is no one like your people, David says, because when they were lost, you went to redeem them. They were in slavery, stuck. They couldn't go anywhere. They were imprisoned, enslaved. And he went to redeem them. He went to pay the price and to buy them out. The lambs slain, the blood placed on the doorpost. And then he removed their enemies from in front of them. Oh, friends, it is my very simple prayer that this morning in our hearts, the questions of praise and prayer are rising in our hearts to God as we study the Bible together. Why such grace to me, O Lord? To us. I mean, look at us. Look at us. We're so incredibly ordinary, aren't we? Some of us will watch the World Cup final. Some of us here are athletes or have been athletes at some point in our history, but we're not on the world's best podiums, are we? Let's be honest. None of us here are in the corridors of power. And you, O Lord, came for me. You came for me. We're about to sing it together in just a moment. Let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord who hath made heaven and earth of naught and with his blood mankind hath bought. That's why we're special. Because he paid for us. He came to get us. Do you know what it means very simply? The church should be full of humble people. End of story. Humble people. People who are no better than anybody else in the room. It's one of the most beautiful, beautiful facets of having a shared confession of sin that we say together. It does not matter who you are and what you've earned and what you've done and where you stand in society. We walk through this door together and we speak to God together. Hear me, O Lord. Forgive me. Thank you for coming for me. And so as the questions end in our passage this morning, David's prayer moves from praise to petition, doesn't it? What happens in verse 20, 25 to the end? He, he asks God to convert astounding promises into actual reality. That's what he does. God, would you take your promises and convert them into reality? 
And so I want to finish with this. We've, we've had three weeks looking at God's promise to David, haven't we? God guaranteed Christmas to David. And God has guaranteed that in the end, Jesus will win. That's God's promise, that everything sad is going to come untrue, that in the end, all will be well, as one day Jesus makes his enemies his footstool. And as he comes again to be seen and to be known in all the world as universal king. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in the meantime? We do what David did and we plead God's promises. That's what David does here. Verse 25, he pleads God's promises. If you want to know what prayer is, prayer pleads promises. Prayer pleads promises. Look at, look at verse 25. I'm going to give you one commentator's literal translation of verse 25. Okay, Dale Ralph Davis. Here's, you, you put your eyes on it and I'll read you the literal translation. And now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken about your servant and about his house, cause it to stand forever. What a prayer. Oh Lord God, the word that you have spoken about me and about my house, cause that word to stand forever. Dear God, here I am, Christmas 2022. I am waiting and watching and weeping. But I know that you are listening. Please will you do what you have promised to do. Please do what you have promised. Please make your promises come to pass. Do you know we do that every single week in church? I've talked about the confession of sin. In just a moment, we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. What do we pray every single week? Your kingdom come. It's what you've promised, Lord. Lord, you've said that Jesus is King. You've said that He will reign forever. So please do it here here, now, today, Lord, in my life, in my church, in my world, in your world. Dale Raff Davis says, David, David sat down and stood on the promises of God. David sat down and stood on the promises of God. And so, friends, I want to wish you a very, very merry, a very happy sitting Christmas standing on God's unbreakable promises. Amen.